if kids don't own the content, the language, and the culture that is taking place, the learning that is taking place, then we in fact become the oppressors. And so it doesn't matter what activities we plan after that, if kids don't know and can't verbalize, you know, this is how I will access um, the content through listening or through metalinguistic awareness or through writing, if they don't know that these are the four ways that we're dismantling systems that oppress, then everything else is going to be much more difficult to make happen. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis, and I am excited to be back for season nine. I don't know how that happened. Let me start by thanking everyone for listening to Highest Aspirations on behalf of everyone here at Elevation Education and all of our guests. When we started this journey over four years ago, we could never have imagined how impactful these interviews would be. Over time, our conversations have become much more than just something to listen to during a commute or while taking a walk, although I hope that that's still valuable. They've really transformed. We've converted a lot of these episodes, or almost all of them, into blog posts with key takeaways. We've created guided learning toolkits on a variety of topics. We've brought in guests for virtual and in-person panels at events, and these are all guests that we've had on the podcast before. And we've done so much more. And I think the most important thing is we've really established some trusted relationships with lots of people in the field, ranging from teachers and administrators to students to just some of the experts that you hear about who have written the books that are on your desks. Remember that you can find all those resources from all of those experts and all of those teachers and all of those students on our learning community, which is free. You can visit elevationeducation.com and click on the resources button on the top right of the page. You'll find everything that you need. Once you're there, take a second to join our community to get these multimedia resources delivered to your inbox every week on our community brief. So I'm not going to bury the lead here for our season nine opener. We have brought back our friend, Dr. Jose Medina. We are so excited to have him back. He was on the podcast about a year and a half ago to talk about lesson planning to dismantle systems of oppression. And we were so excited to bring him back again. Some of the questions we are going to explore in this episode with Dr. Medina are, what are culture learning targets and why are they critical for creating non-oppressive learning environments? How can individual teachers lesson plan in a way that can disrupt the status quo of the monolingual-centric approach to learning? And finally, how can educators support their multilingual learners in making cross-linguistic connections and fostering a practice of metalinguistic awareness? All of those are pretty heavy, kind of highfalutin terms, but Dr. Medina, if you're familiar with his work, has a way of breaking it down into really actionable steps that you can take, whether you're an administrator of a school or a district or a teacher in a classroom and really everything in between. Not to mention he's a super inspirational person. If you've seen him on social media, you understand what I'm talking about. Quick kind of bio on Dr. Medina. He is the founder and chief educational advocate for Dr. Jose Medina Educational Solutions. Prior to establishing the boutique consulting firm, Dr. Medina served as research scientist and director of dual language and bilingual education at the Center for Applied Linguistics, otherwise known as CAL, in Washington, D.C. That's a place where we get a lot of our resources that we share in our brief. Dr. Medina provides dual language technical assistance, professional development, and job embedded support to dual language programs across the United States and globally. 
He is a former dual-language school principal and district leader who has also served as an administrator, educator, and advocate at the elementary, middle, and high school levels. He is the co-author of the third edition and widely used Guiding Principles for Dual-Language Education and the creator of the C6 Biliteracy Instructional Framework, which we discussed in our last episode with him. As I mentioned, you can learn more about Dr. Jose Medina on his website and by following him on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And I can promise that you won't be disappointed by his posts on all social media outlets, but I would steer you to TikTok and some of the videos that he creates as a great start. I hope you enjoy our first episode of season nine of Highest Aspirations with our friend and colleague, Dr. Jose Medina. Dr. Jose Medina, thank you so much for joining us again on Highest Aspirations. It is great to have you as a repeat guest. No, gracias a usted, Steve. Thank you, thank you so much for the invite to come again. Me encanta la oportunidad de estar con usted. Of course, yeah. And, um, you know, last time we had talked specifically about the C6 Biliteracy Instructional Framework. It was really a great episode, and I don't do this often, but I'm going to say to folks, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, go back and listen to it. You can listen to this one first. There's no order or rule, but that was a great one. We also You also wrote a blog post um, for us on that one that I'll link to as well. And kind of as a way of kind of attaching that one to this episode that we're going to do today, I really, before we go any further, I want to call out the fact that that, that we've said quite frequently on Highest Aspirations that good instruction for multilingual learners is good instruction for all students. That's nothing new. We've heard that a lot. You've really widened the lens um, on that by calling out that monolingual and monocultural perspectives of teaching and learning have harmed all students, but particularly those from traditional marginalized groups. And there are many. So the stakes are really high for those educators who you say, and, and we know have the power to either support or dismantle systems that, that many argue have historically marginalized so many students. So the question here is with that background, have edu- it's a kind of way to start here. Have educators come to terms with that power and responsibility, you think? I think that there's a lot of work to be done in that area. And I think that it's all about clarifying um, one very uh, important piece. Um, schools in the United States were conceptualized to promote a white, monolingual, and monocultural, um, heteronormative, often patriarchal uh, perspective of teaching and learning. And so when you talk about good instruction is good instruction, like I challenge that and I say, no, good instruction is not good instruction because so much of the pedagogy, the um, instructional practices that we actually leverage in the classroom are created and are promoted to exclude culturally and linguistically diverse student communities. And so when we say good instruction is good instruction, I call bullshit because what we are really saying is that it's good instruction for all kids when in reality, the strategies that we're promoting are specifically lifeboats and equity work for those marginalized student communities. And so good instruction is not good instruction. The practices that we're talking about are specifically lifeboats for students that have been left out in the rain. If we want to, you know, go the Donna summer way, right? <laughs> left out in the rain. But I hate when people say that because I think that it's an ill-informed statement that comes from a good place, but that we really need to go against in education. And does that even go with when people are specifically saying that good instruction for English learners or emergent bilinguals or multilingual learners or whatever term you're using is good instruction for all students? That's still in your in your view off. It is off because 
Um, will other students benefit from the practices and the research that we're talking about? Absolutely. But remember that so much of what happens in schools really is uh, monolingual and monocultural centered. And so the things that we're advocating for are essential and have to be there specifically to serve the needs of those culturally and linguistically diverse student communities. Great. I'm really glad we asked that question because it's like it's like a way that everybody level sets. Good instruction for multilingual learners is good instruction for all students. You're challenging that notion, which I think is always a good thing. Let me let me ask one more question that I feel like we didn't get to in our last interview, and I'm dying to ask it because we talked a lot about this. We're writing white papers on this. We're writing blog posts. We're talking a lot about it, and it's about the C6 biliteracy instructional framework. We often talk about bilingual and dual language programs as kind of the gold standard, right, for, for multilingual learners. But many districts, for whatever reason, aren't able to offer these programs. So the question then becomes, it's becoming, I think, more and more of a question as, as teachers in school districts are thinking more about their multilingual learners, which is important. How can the C6, I'll just call it C6BIF because it's easier, um, be used in, in other programs, those monolingual programs, to help support and scale both culturally and linguistically sustaining pedagogical practices? Can it be incorporated into educators' everyday lesson planning uh, planning routines? I don't think we really covered that last time, so I just want to take a moment to, to get into that. Yeah, I really appreciate the question. So three things about the C6 that are important to remind folks about. Um, one, lesson planning is a political act. With every lesson that we design, we are either maintaining or dismantling systems of oppression in the school building. Um, number two, we have to embrace translanguaging research and cross-linguistic connections. And the third tenet is that we really have to create this madre, as I like to call it, mm -hmm. in the name of equidad and social justice, that anti-bias, anti-racism, critical consciousness, sociocultural competence work. And that third piece, that's where the culture learning target really plays a role. Now, to answer your question, these three tenets are going to be beneficial for any educational setting because the there are students that are diverse in every educational setting. We have students of color, indigenous students. We have um, linguistically diverse students in all educational settings. So although um, we would all love to move towards a dual language program model, that isn't always the case. But these strategies that we're talking about um, causing that good trouble, that disruption can be leveraged in every educational setting. And I have good news for you, Steve. Like, there are folks around the country and internationally that are implementing and causing this good trouble in monolingual settings where teachers that only language in English are allowing their diverse students to make cross-linguistic connections into the language of their heart. Or kids that are in a monolingual setting that know what um, translanguaging and metalinguistic awareness are, and they're owning their language bubble, their linguistic repertoire, whether they're in pre-K or, at, you know, at the high school level. And this is amazing because we have these teachers that are willing to be vulnerable and learn alongside the students they serve and create these linguistically and culturally inclusive spaces where um, students really are taking the reins and leading the learning that is taking place in the classroom. So it definitely can be um, leveraged. All of these strategies can be leveraged in any educational setting. Which is the headline, but everything that you said is so important and I'm so tempted to go down a lot of different roads right now and a lot of the things that you just said, one of which we will go down, I think throughout the course of this conversation, you mentioned learning cultural, uh, cultural learning targets, which we'll get into. Everything else I'm going to leave behind and point people toward that other podcast episode and kind of transition into uh, into what we're going to really get at today. 
So you wrote an article recently in Language Magazine. I read through it a bunch of times because I was kind of preparing this interview, but I thought it was wonderful and I really highly recommend it. Um, you write and you've written that that most educators are comfortable with unpacking grade level standards, which as a former high school teacher myself, I would 100% agree with, but not nearly as confident in understanding the role that language and cultural learning targets play in ensuring that all students have access to the content being shared. I also agree with that. I think that's a that was tough for me, even as a Spanish teacher with a fair amount of knowledge about the, the multilingual learners that happen to be mostly Spanish speakers that I had in my classroom. That being said, what is the solution here, aside from completely revamping uh, teacher preparation programs? So I, I do believe that there's some work that needs to happen in teacher preparation programs, because I don't feel like in many instances, we are actually giving tools uh, to the teachers that are about to enter the classroom that are needed. I think that that's definitely one of the things that we need to do. And um, again, I have good news for you, Steve, because there are university teacher preparation programs that are leveraging um, this research that we're talking about, translanguaging in um, linguistically inclusive practices, the C6, um, and are engaging kids, kids, as if I'm really, really old, I'm, you know, students, students that are about to graduate from the university um, and enter the classroom um, that are actually doing these kinds of things from the get go. Um, I'm thinking specifically of one university, the University of Texas at El Paso, where um, one university professor actually brings her students into the trainings that I do so that when they graduate, they've actually gone through the C6 by literacy instructional framework and know the difference between a bridge level one, a bridge level two, translanguaging, metalinguistic awareness, um, the culture, the four ways to plan for a culture learning target. So I I think that that definitely is important. Um, I think that school districts also have a lot of work to do. And having been a district leader, I know that this is part of um, the work that we try to do as well. And I continue to support that work because for so long, um, the planning, uh, the lesson planning process, but specifically the planning of content, language, and culture objectives, if they even got to the culture learning target piece, um, it's been about compliance. And mm -hmm. so it's just like a check mark and mm -hmm. teachers will post things on their whiteboards or, you know, in the kids' notebooks, kids will write those objectives. But if a student doesn't own um, that culture, that content and that language learning target, then it really is about the adults. And, you know, we love administrators, but who the hell cares if the principal owns the content, language and culture learning target? It's the students that need to own that. And so I feel like that's definitely a piece that needs to be um, worked on. And that's where the teacher comes in. Um, there are a lot of things that we as teachers cannot control, but there are things that we can. And so I too have to own uh, the content language and culture learning targets that I plan. But as I plan them, I need to be very specific in the intent for each of the three. And I need to know that the content learning target is what the kids are going to be interacting with in terms of standards. The language learning target is the how they will unpack and access those standards via the five language domains, the four plus one, because I know we're going to talk a little bit later about that, but there aren't four language domains, there are five. And then finally, the culture learning target, which really has been ignored in most classrooms, um, contextualizes the content and the language learning targets. It's the why, and it's the way that we actually um, disrupt 
those systems of oppression that exist in every single classroom. And so I, I think there's a lot there that I'm sure you want to take us down a rabbit hole because I want to go down that rabbit <laughs> hole as well, because there's so much work to be done. And, and a lot of it um, has to be done at the systems level, but some of it can also be done at the classroom teacher level. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you bringing the, both of those up. And, and in, in no way are you attempting to dodge the question by saying we do it at the, you know, at the, at the higher levels, because it's not just at the higher levels. And, you know, in the spirit of you already bringing up two bits of good news, I'll bring up another piece of good news. Is Yay, that I, think, I like good news. I really feel like this is a part of a larger scale change that I think we're seeing happen. You know, we're going from still slowly, more slowly than I'd like, I think, and more and many people would like a very... A teacher-centered classroom, right, where it's quiet and it's controlled. And I'm using air quotes here for those who can't see um, by the teacher. Uh, where and we're moving on, and there's more acceptance about a student-centered classroom and what that looks like. And hopefully, as these new teachers come up, and uh, you know, veteran teachers like myself um, learn, right, they begin to kind of embrace those things. And what you're saying really is a part of that. And so I wonder, and again, rabbit hole, so I'll be careful, but I wonder how much of like the muscle memory that we've developed over and what good teaching looks like to us, even if it's not good, um, is involved in this. And perhaps two, two things are happening at once here and we have some momentum. Yeah, I think everything that you just mentioned is, you know, it, it hits the nail on the head. Like it's absolutely a part of that. Um, that student ownership piece is what we all talk about. But what we don't often mention is that it starts with the learning targets, mm -hmm. because if the kids don't own the learning targets, then none of the other pieces will fall into place. But we just haven't been trained um, talking about that muscle memory. We haven't been trained to realize that if kids don't own the content, the language, and the culture that is taking place, the learning that is taking place, then we in fact become the oppressors. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter what activities we plan after that. If kids don't know and can't verbalize, you know, this is how I will access um, the content through listening or through metalinguistic awareness or through writing. If they don't know that these are the four ways that we're dismantling systems that oppress, then everything else is going to be much more difficult to make happen. And so that lesson planning process and that student ownership of, of learning targets is definitely the first step in equity in terms of how we facilitate and co-facilitate instruction alongside the students that we serve. So let's get into that. I, I, I avoided the rabbit hole because you just trans, transitioned nice into what I want to get into. You, you point out that educators should create learning targets. We're just talking about that. That, uh, quote, disrupt the status quo and reject monolingual and monocultural centric uh, perspective of teaching and learning. No surprise there. We've already talked about that. So my question is, how, you know, you talked a little bit about this. Educators do have the power to do these things. And it's not just about leadership. But how do they do this in the face of administrations? We know they exist or, or local education agencies or state education agencies that might not support these perspectives. I mean, we're living in crazy times right now. We are. So I'll start with language, right? Because language is one of those entry points that are super, it is the entry point to equity and social justice work. Um, and it's something that I, as a teacher, can plan for and um, allow students to own. So one of the things that teachers need to remember is that kids need to understand 
that the way that they access content is through the language domains that we were talking about. That's the first step. So we always talk about listening, speaking, reading, and writing. But the truth is that for our emergent bilingual multilingual students, there is a plus one. And that plus one is metalinguistic awareness. Metalinguistic awareness being the ability of students to make connections between the languages, um, the nation languages that are represented within their one linguistic repertoire. Remembering that obviously there's even the concept of nation languages is a social construct, but we work within a system and so we'll go with it. And so if a student knows the word dog, then they're able to use their metalinguistic awareness to make a connection to perro or to chien. Um, and so a student from the age of two, three, four, all the way to, you know, the university level should know that whatever they know in one language, they actually know in every single language. Mm -hmm. They just need to use their metalinguistic awareness. They also need to be aware of what language domain they are leveraging at that moment most during the lesson. So if your students, if I'm a teacher right now and I'm listening to this podcast and I'm wondering, do my kids really own their learning targets? We should be able to walk into your classroom and ask a student, oh, yes, eh, ¿qué parte del idioma estás manejando en este momento? What part of language are you using to access the standards? And the student, if they're four or 18, should be able to say, well, right now we're using listening and speaking. Um, and how do you know that? Well, because there's the icon that shows that we're using listening and speaking. We're using all of them, but those are the two we're owning the most. Like that's the kind of ownership that we're talking about. In terms of the trickiness about culture learning targets, um, which is what provides that context for that content and the language learning target, there are four ways that we can actually cause good trouble. Um, the first one is amplifying the voices of marginalized communities. Um, this is the most scary one. I think it's the one you're referencing. The second one is connecting to the student and the world beyond the classroom walls. That one we've always done. And so it's good to know that as a teacher, I've been causing good trouble because I've been connecting to students yeah. and to real world applications. So I'm like, ah, I'm kind <laughs> of fabulous, right? Um, the third way, um, strengthening metalinguistic awareness and cross-linguistic connections. That's so interrelated to that language learning target. And then the fourth way to plan for a culture learning target is getting rid of hierarchies in language and understanding that this whole academic and social language piece, like that's a construct as well. Um, it doesn't matter if the student says sup or they say, how are you or how do you do? Sup is as gorgeous and as valuable and as correct as how do you do? Or in Spanish, when a student says uh, aiga instead of aya. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom <laughs> and my dad say aiga. And I know that no one's going to be telling me que mi mamá y mi papá are wrong because they're not. So aiga is just as gorgeous as aya. Those are the four ways that we can strategically cause this madre with every lesson that we design. And I always remind teachers, you know, I never heard anyone tell me, Jose, as you lesson plan, you need to be thinking, how will I dismantle systems of oppression today? But that's how we should lesson plan. As we begin to identify those components and, and draft those objectives, those learning targets, how will I dismantle systems of oppression with a lesson that I will co-facilitate alongside, alongside my students today? Like that's the, that's the big shift in terms of thinking. That's great. And I would just add a couple of things. One, you know, after having read the article that, that I referenced earlier in Language Magazine, there's a lot of really good graphics that show this in charts. I would recommend people look at that because there's a lot of what we're talking about here 
um, it's nice to hear. And I think what people do at this podcast, and I'm very proud of it and excited about it, is that they get inspired. Um, but as with anything else, you have to take the next step. You can't just be inspired. So please be inspired by what Dr. Medina just said, but then take a look at some of this because it's out there. I mean, I don't know if you realize what you just did, Steve, but you just called people out because I think what I heard Steve say was that it's great to um, hear podcasts, but if you don't actually take the action, then we are aligning with oppressive systems. I mean, I don't know if that's what you meant to do, but that's how I took it, Steve. I was like, I'm not an oppressor, Steve. I'm going to do something about it. That is definitely how I will mean it next time. 100% <laughs> if I say that, but uh, I appreciate you you building in that, that definition that I think is highly appropriate and should be the one that I'm striving for. Um, so I, what else do I want to say? So the IGA and IGA thing is just, I can't help it. I have to talk a little about this. I was a Spanish as a foreign language teacher. I My first job, I worked in Lynn, Massachusetts. I was 22 years old. I had no business being in the classroom. So anybody who was a senior or junior at that point, just a couple of years younger than me, I'm, I'm sorry, I did the best I could with you and you taught me so much. But one of the things that, that you know, that, that, I hope there are uh, foreign language teachers listening because we get obsessed about that. That's not subjuntivo. That's wrong. That's the incorrect form. You write it, you say it, it's, it's, it's wrong. But it, it, it took me so long to realize. And I realized it kind of on my own over time, just learning from my students and really, really respecting them as people, not only as students and as people who came to me with their own culture and their own language to start to say to them that whatever you took, because they would be down on themselves. They would say, I don't know how to speak Spanish you know, properly like you do. I said, I learned Spanish when I was basically in college in Spain. There's no, there's nothing wrong with the way that you speak. And that example that you just brought up, because I can't think of anything more oppressive and I'm probably guilty of having done it at one point in my career Me too. is, me too. is, is, is saying I got is wrong and I get is right because it's more formal or because it, one isn't in the, you know, the Royal Academy of Language or whatever that thing is called that people used to talk about. Back in the day. La, la Real Academia de la Lengua Español. There you go. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that there's so much work to be done in all areas of, of education, but I love that you're bringing um, to attention this in world language, because one of the things that I've never understood about world language is there's so much intersection there with bilingual and dual language education, but somehow it's like we're working separately. Silos, yeah. Yeah, like it doesn't make sense. If I'm teaching, if I'm facilitating instruction in French or Spanish or German, why wouldn't I allow the kids to engage in cross-linguistic anchor chart creation? Because it just makes it tougher on me if I'm, um, you know, focused on this full immersion experience. Immersion is oppressive because when we say that we're full immersion without any cross-linguistic work, what we're saying is that we don't value a student's entire linguistic repertoire and you start from zero because if you don't speak French, then you know nothing mm -hmm. if that's the language of instruction. And it just seems so counterintuitive to what we should be doing in all classrooms, including those facilitated only in English, or in any language, including world language as well. Right. Great. Um, but wanted to, I want you to take a moment because I think it's a really uh, beautiful kind of analogy that you use. You, you use this set of locked heavy metal doors to describe how language learning targets work. And, and w without trying to only focus on that one learning target, it's, I think it's a really beautiful analogy. Could you just share that? So we, you know, I think it'll inform a little bit of the rest of our conversation. Absolutely. So I was 
I was one of those teachers that didn't always leverage language learning targets with my students. And so like you, I want to apologize to all of the students that I served. I did the best I could and, <laughs> um, and, and I too learned so much from them. Um, and so what our team has done is really tried to clarify the importance of the three learning targets, um, specifically for language. I tell teachers, I want you to imagine that my hands are heavy metal doors and I place that my, you know, my two hands in front of my face. And I want the teachers to imagine that those heavy metal doors, bien pesadas, pesadas las puertas, are locked and they have chains all over the place. So no one can get through. The standards are behind those heavy metal doors. And so no student can enter and access those standards unless they own their language learning target. The language learning target that I initially plan as a teacher, but that then continues to grow and evolve as students um, take ownership, that language learning target is what opens those heavy metal doors. And so I have to decide as a teacher, what will the key be to access those standards? Is the key going to be listening and then magically the doors open or speaking or reading or writing or the one we've always ignored and therefore have been oppressive about? the plus one, that metalinguistic awareness. Because if we visualize it in that way, then we clearly understand that when kids don't have the key, then we're actually asking them to find the standard in the dark. A content learning target without a language learning target that is owned by the students is asking them to find that standard in the dark. Mm -hmm. It is in fact linguistic oppression. That language learning target is the linguistic equity part of the lesson planning process. And what's crazy, Steve, is there are a lot of us that were never told that. So there are a lot of us in education yeah. that will never plan for a language learning target. And then we'll say things like, oh, well, we have a lot of long-term English learners. Like we did that, Steve, because we never created access to open the doors. And so a lot of the kids are going to climb over the doors. A lot of the kids are going to squeeze under the doors. Some are going to find a way through the side of those mm -hmm. heavy metal doors. But we're always going to have a handful of kids that never are able to open the doors. And now we reference and refer to those students as long-term English yeah. learners when we never established the language learning target that would help them to access that grade level standard. Yeah, you know, and it, what, what you're bringing up is so highly relevant for me right now as we, we're, we're kind of planning on doing a, a session on particularly what kinds of interventions we can put in place so that students who might be classified as long-term English learners can actually either perform on par or even better than their monolingual peers. And there are so many ways to do that. And you're describing it in such a great way. And so I think to bring that long-term English learner kind of piece up is really important because if you know anything about long-term English learners, you know that the statistics are not good for what happens with those students post, if they even graduate, and then and certainly in the future. Um, and so it's not about looking at alarming, horrible, in my opinion, and I like your reaction, horrible statistics about a student group. It's about what interventions can we put in place that they never get that label. And again, so that they not only not get that label, but they can perform on par or better than their monolingual uh, peers. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think that um, to add to what you said and, and piggyback on it is what are the um, linguistically inclusive systems that are present at the campus and at the district level that would allow us to better serve students who are newly arrived or who are emergent and uh, bilingual and multilingual students um, who are born here because we have a lot of students that were born here and are still identified 
um, in that way. What are those systems that are in place? Because if there are no systems in terms of um, giving kids ownership of the language domains, if all teachers are writing content language learning targets in different ways, um, then we can't scale that work. And so all of us think that we're doing one thing, but all of us are doing a different thing. And so one of the things that I appreciate um, in terms of the you reading the article and giving me this opportunity to speak is that in the article that will actually be published on um, at the beginning of August um, in Language Magazine, um, it actually gives us examples of three steps to plan for a language learning target. And based on what we see the students engaged in um, during that lesson, we can add a fourth step to take it to that detailed language learning target. Because then we create a system where Steve is using the same system to plan as I am so that it's not about just what happens in Steve's class, but I can walk into any classroom and actually um, see kids at any age owning their language learning targets. I have more good news for you, Steve. So in school districts that are doing this kind of work, like you literally can walk from classroom to classroom and ask a student, regardless of age, oye, es que es el metalenguaje. El metalenguaje quiere decir que todo lo que está en inglés lo está en español y todo lo que está en español lo está en inglés. ¿Me lo puedes decir en inglés? Everything I know in English, I know in Spanish, and everything I know in Spanish, I know in English. And what's translanguaging, is that different? Yeah, it's a little bit different. It means that I move the language that I need from my one language bubble. ¿Me lo puedes decir en español? Si es que voy a mover el lenguaje que necesito de mi burbuja del idioma cuando lo necesite. Like, that's the kind of ownership that we're talking about. And it's happening, Steve, in yeah. monolingual and dual language and ELD, ESL, ENL classrooms as well. World language classrooms as well. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Puts a smile on your face. It's hard not to smile when you think about the everything that you have just said. You just said it in a beautiful way, too. But if you put the face of a child saying that, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. Super wow. Super wow. Um, all right. So I. I'm going to kind of try to get back on track here. I, not that I'm worried, but I think the conversation has been awesome so far. I am, I want to talk a little bit about this, a little bit more about translanguaging and metabilingual, uh, metalinguistic awareness, and not just kind of the, the what behind it, but, but the how. Um, so you argue that emergent bilingual and multilingual learners must engage in a constant negotiation between the languages they mobilize. Um, so the, the how is, if you, if you take that image that you were just giving us of students from classroom to classroom doing this at scale, um, what is it that educators need to, to, to create and implement um, in order to encourage that practice and allow their students to take more ownership of their learning? I know that that could be like a three-hour you know, lecture, but I'd love to hear kind of what your, what your first reaction is. Absolutely. I think that the first thing is that all of us as educators need to be um, well aware and begin to interact with translanguaging research because for so long um, language acquisition research has been about like BICS and CALP, um, academic, social language, very compartmentalized and of course important and seminal work in our field. So not disregarding the importance of that foundational work, but we also know more now. And so understanding translanguaging research and what it is and what it isn't, I think is the first step. Um, that interconnectedness to metalinguistic awareness, I think it's important. So metalinguistic awareness, as I mentioned before, is just 
being able to make those connections within your one language bubble um, between the languages represented in your one linguistic repertoire. Translanguaging is about moving language. And so all of us move language based on the context. So the, those of you that are fabulous and monolingual um, who are listening, you translanguage all the time. If you're speaking to your father, your mother, your spouse, you will speak differently than if you're speaking to a boss or a child. And so you're moving language from your one linguistic repertoire based on that context. The reason that translanguaging research is so important for our linguistically diverse students is that they've never been allowed to leverage their entire linguistic repertoire because right. in US schools, we just care about English. And so if you're a monolingual English speaking child, from the moment that you walk into a US classroom, you are loved and coddled and cherished and praised because you are able to leverage and move close to 100% of your language bubble. Translanguaging is important in um, serving emergent bilingual and multilingual students because we're saying we're moving on purpose, we're actively moving away from that English-centric perspective, and we are going to allow students to leverage their entire language bubble, regardless of educational setting. And I'm gonna allow the students to make connections between the content that they're learning in English, and I'm gonna let them make connections to the language of their heart so that they're able to language about that deep content understanding, not just in the target language, but in additional languages as well. So I think that that would be my, my one message to your listeners. If you take one thing away from this, please take this away. Like we have to change our mindset in terms of um, what it means to be linguistically inclusive, because the truth is I'm super guilty, Steve. Like I am a language oppressor. And I have to work on not being a language oppressor every single day because I'm a language oppressor in English. I'm a language oppressor in Spanish. I'm a language oppressor in Spanglish, Steve, because I'm a hot mess. <laughs> but if we don't own that, then we can't work to um, break down that oppression, break down those biases that are so present as we lesson plan. Yeah, you know, one thing that you mentioned in there in the middle there that I think is worth reflecting on a little bit is you mentioned the research, the seminal research, um, on, and a lot of it is on, you know, academic language and, you know, there's there's talk about social language, but they're, they're, they're often like used in these bubbles. And I think it can be interpreted interpreted by people who are reading the research or people who are trying to implement it the right way as academic language and academic vocabulary is number one. And I must focus on that. And that might be at the cost of everything else. Whereas now it's, it, it's, it's more about making sure that we are not only allowing students to use all of their language repertoire, but we are actively encouraging them to do so. And not only are we encouraging them to do so, but we know that by doing that, we are actually helping that student. And I have this weird, I have this feeling that many teachers just don't feel right about it. They feel not not in a bad, not like uh, in a, in a in a in a way that they're trying to be oppressive, but they are because they just have it ingrained in them that, well, what's the expense? What's the cost? They're never going to learn English. But the research shows so clearly. But I just don't think it's, it hasn't caught up to most. You know what I mean? So so much of this is like getting the word out. So how do we do that? I mean, we're doing it now. You're doing yeah. a great job with it, but 
Well, we, it's just ongoing work. First of all, your audience can't see this, but I was snapping my very queer fingers over here as an openly gay educator, just snapping away <laughs> and applauding for Steve as he was speaking. Um, and, and yes, we need to get this message out because it's not that teachers, we're good people. Most of us as educators came into the field because we want to serve. Um, and, and so all of us have good hearts, but we've also been conditioned um, to facilitate instruction through this very English-centric um, perspective. And so it's going to take some dismantling of, of some of that. It's going to take some unlearning and dismantling of those practices within me to actually move forward. Um, how do we share this message? I mean, I have to tell you, you and I have talked before, Steve, like I use social media a lot to share these messages because the truth is that there are a lot of folks, not just teachers, but even um, just individuals outside the world of education who have for their entire lives felt that they are less than simply because schools in the United States have told them that they are less than. And I will take my last breath saying no manches way, like we will um, value all that, 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 that is a part of our, of our culture and our identity and our language. One thing that you mentioned that was key to me is this focus on academic and social language and that usually it's at the expense of social language. I always share that um, when I speak with my mom and my dad, who only language, by the way, in Spanish, Steve, they've been in this country for over 50 years and the only language in Spanish is not amazing. And if anyone out there listening is wondering, why haven't they learned English? Que te importa? It's none of your business. Mira, que oppressor of you. They were working multiple jobs to create educational access for their three children. That's what they were doing. Um, and, and so understanding that the way that my parents' language is as perfect as whatever La Real Academia de la Lengua Española tells me or um, you know, any of the state assessments in any one of the states that we serve, you know, the 50 states that we serve around the country, their language is gorgeous and perfect. And it's taken me a long time to say that because in saying that, then I would also need to say that my language is also perfect. In English, in Espanol, in Spanglish, is perfección. And, and that's hard to do because I was trained in a very different way. Yeah. Mindsets, and you mentioned unlearning as well, which I think is something that we cannot say uh, enough about. Yeah. Um, okay. As we sort of begin to wrap up here. So I want to talk about some of your recommendations and you've mentioned some of them before, but some of them to sort of facilitate the meaningful change that you're that we're all looking for are self-reflection, a willingness to learn and unlearn, as we just mentioned, empowering the student and continuous tenacity and engagement. And I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here because we don't have time to talk about all of them and you can all read more about them uh, in that in that language magazine article that comes out in August. Um, but to wrap up the conversation, I, I want you to kind of choose one of those and really try to go in depth a little bit and tell us why it's so important. Maybe that's like choosing one of your children. I don't know, but I'm going to make you do it anyway. Sure. I mean, they're so interconnected, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll play your game. I'll add, <laughs> I'll add a piece. The first one, self-reflection piece. We just need to acknowledge that we're all a hot mess. If you acknowledge that you're a hot mess, you've taken the first step in your journey. Tell me more. Tell me more about what being a hot mess is. 
being a hot mess is understanding that I don't know everything, that um, practices change, that I was taught in a very English-centric perspective if, during my teacher preparation time and most of the professional learning that I've ever engaged in, even at the age of 51. So owning that I'm a hot mess and that I have been oppressive is the first step. Willingness to learn and unlearn. Like I need to understand that because I am a hot mess, I know some things, but there's a lot still that I need to continue to grow. And I think that that's really beneficial. I need to un also understand that for a long time, I didn't empower students and I didn't give them ownership of their content language and culture learning. And so that's a piece of it. And that takes me to the one that I will focus on, which is um, continuous tenacity and engagement. I think that's important. I think this is where the culture learning target comes in, especially right now, Steve, when um, women's rights are under attack where um, legislatures around the country, state legislatures around the country are um, dismantling the rights of indigenous communities, where in certain states, I no longer um, can say that I'm gay in an open fashion and actually um, queer kids are being ousted and lists are being created where if a school thinks that a student may be gay, the parents of the other kids in that classroom will be notified so that they can take alternate measures. Like, I think this is where we can really take that culture learning target um, and move in the right direction. Because if even though it's scary, if we don't do that, if we don't plan for anti-bias, anti-racism work with students, then who cares if they learned um, math content in one or two languages? At the end of the day, if the kids are academically successful, but are a big hot mess like we are, then we've not done our job. And so I need to think every day as I lesson plan, this is how I can continue to be engaged in this game. Am I gonna amplify the voices of marginalized communities today with this lesson plan? Am I going to connect to the student uh, and the world beyond the classroom? Am I going to engage kids in cross-linguistic work and allow them to leverage their entire linguistic repertoire? Or am I going to um, embrace the fact that there is no hierarchy between language and, and really focus on that with this lesson? And I think that if we take those four ways, then we really are setting ourselves up and the communities that we serve um, to do better, to be better. Because I think more than ever, like the moment is now. And I think, you know, you, you ended there with communities. I, I feel like that's so, so important. Like our communities need not only teachers and educators who understand the responsibility and the power that they have. It's the community as well. They need to understand it and they need to respect it. And they need to really empathize with the work that educators need to do. That is so far beyond, as you just mentioned, the content that they teach. It, it is just, it is, it is so far beyond that. And what a beautiful responsibility and job to have. I mean, it's incredible, right? It's so much more than just teaching kids math or history or science. Um, but we have to sign up for that, right? And in order to sign up for that, we have to understand the job that's in front of us and we have to accept it. And we have to have the world around us accept it for what it is and understand what it is and what it means and what supports um, our teachers need to do that. I don't mean to sound like that. I, I, I get, I get, um, I get upset when I hear people kind of, uh, you know, look at teachers as martyrs and say, "Oh, you're doing such a great job. It's so incredible the work you're doing." But having done it for a long time, 17 years, I, I feel like I have the right to say, to say that and to bring it up because I think it's important. It is super important, and I, I want the um, the listeners to also know 
that we're all scared. Like I get, I get up every day, Steve, and I'm nervous. And I mean, I facilitate professional learning almost daily somewhere in the country, whether virtual or in person. And what teachers need to understand is that this is scary work. Um, but I also know that when it is scary work, it is also meaningful work. And so every day I wake up and I'm nervous, regardless of the audience that I'm going to face that day. And then I ask myself, Jose, Medina, Junior, what privileges are you feeling most today? And how will you use them and leverage them to create access to them for others? Desmadre. In the name of equidad and social justice, adelante. And that's what starts my day. I also dance, by the way. As I'm <laughs> dancing, I ask myself these reflection questions. <laughs> Every day, a different playlist as I, as I fix the little bit of hair that I have left. <laughs> we, could all, we could all learn a little bit from that routine. I really appreciate it. So I have two more questions for you sure. as, as we wrap up. And they're kind of questions that I ask everybody. And I asked you this question uh, maybe two years ago. We did the last one. I can't believe it's been that long, but I think it has. Um, is there a book or other resource that during that time, you didn't mention last time, has maybe influenced you either personally or professionally that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, so I actually, um, I'm, I'm in the midst of rereading Pedagogy of the Oppressed, Pedagogia del Oprimido, and I would encourage teachers to do that. I reflected a lot on this question, but that's the one that I keep coming to, and I know that I reference it often, but um, specifically, I came back to it after the overturning of Roe versus Wade, yeah. because I've been having such a difficult time um, in centering my emotions. And what does this look like for the work that has happened and the work that yet has to occur? And so um, I pulled it out and I'm reading it in Spanish this time, Pedagogia del Oprimido. Um, I wanted to read it in Spanish. I've always read it in English, but I do have that Spanish copy that I purchased many years ago. So that's what I'm reading right now. Good one to return to for the reasons that you mentioned. I think everybody's feeling a little bit. I I've just noticed moments in my own life. I've just felt this this, this, this impending, this anxiety, right. That I just don't, I, at first I can't put my finger on it and I say, oh yeah, it's kind of what I've been, what the world is right now. And so I think it's important to recognize it, notice it, let it in, figure out what it is and then do something about it. Um, okay. So last question is, and there are so many ways and social media, I think is, is, is one and probably the entry point for so many people who know about your work. It really is incredible what you're doing on social and I love it, but how can people learn more about the work you're doing? Give us a couple of ways. Sure. So they can go to our website, www.drjosemedina.com. If you click on the resources tab, there's podcasts, including the one that I've done with, uh, with you, Steve, in the past. There are articles, white papers, videos um, that, that you can reference um, and that you can use. And then for those of you that, um, that want to follow on social media, it's Jose Medina 1000 on Instagram and TikTok and Jose Medina JR Jr. 89 um, on Twitter. Great. Well, uh, Dr. Jose Medina, it is uh, always, always such a wonderful, fun and inspiring um, and thoughtful conversation. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time again. And hopefully we can come back and revisit these things in, 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 in a year or so. Yeah, no, gracias a ustedes, sí. Gracias por todo el trabajo que está manejando y gracias por la oportunidad de venir a compartir. I know um, that often students like me with my background don't get an opportunity to, to leverage um, their ideas. And so know that I'm eternally grateful to you and to Elevation. So thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.